0: Please remain standing and open your Bibles to the book of John. Sometimes we call it the Gospel of John. It's distinguished from the three letters in the back, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. This is the fourth book in the New Testament. John chapter 1, and we'll read verses 1 through 5 as our text this morning. John 1, 1 through 5. Lord, we thank you for your word today. For some, it might be very familiar. It's new. We pray that you'll help us interact with your text. Help us to learn what you Help us to respond accordingly. By your holy Spirit. in Jesus' name, amen. So we will be taking a breather from... Second King's for a few months, a couple months at least, and um, that'll be, that'll be fun to get back, give you a time to read ahead and see what's there. I enjoyed the the remarks and the interaction with people who weren 't familiar with that passage last week, and that's a slap upside the head sometimes when we read these passages, and there it is in God's word, and it's true and and, and it's there for us for a reason, and it's it's kind of fun. Times I feel jealous of people who are hearing some of these passages for the very first time in their lives, um, and yet i 'm thankful that we grew up and it was part of our Bibles and our Bible stories and our reading in our families so um, anyway we 're in john i don 't know how many times you 've heard a sermon series through this book for some of you, I suspect quite a few times I remember a conversation um, that somebody said their pastor. That was his his go-to text. Uh, I can guarantee that you have not heard a sermon series from John from me, because I've never, ever preached through John before. Mark a couple of times, Luke once recently here, never John. I've preached some sermons from John. There's some familiar parts of John, my favorite Bible story or incident, you could say, is, is in John. I, lo- I love that story of Jesus with the woman at the well. That's my that's my favorite for whatever reason. Um, I've preached about Jesus' high priestly prayer. When we first uh, formed this church and, and all that, uh, somebody told you you needed a key verse and a, a verse to distinguish you and all that. And so we were all big on John 10.10 10, where Jesus said, I come that you might have life and have it to the full. Uh, every funeral that I ever have the privilege of preaching, especially for a Christian, but even for a non-Christian, where you're supposed to talk about Jesus and these things, you will hear John fourteen six, 6, uh, where Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Uh, comes to Easter week, uh, there are some things about Jesus on the cross and and, and Resurrection Sunday. There's some things that John covers that others don't. And so we've preached through them, and there's a lot of familiarity. I was looking in this particular Bible. Uh, 2019, I got this, the Preacher's Bible, with the wide margins and all that stuff. And and in the back, I I noticed this. I, I had written a column, Sermons Preached Using This Bible. And there's only one entry. It was a good idea at the time. (laughs) And I said, I'm going to leave that page in there so some kid or somebody might find that and just laugh at at, uh, Dave who had these big aspirations to record all this. But that sermon, I I know that in this church on on March 31 of 19, I preached from John 11, 1 through 44, Jesus, the resurrection, and the life. Uh, So I have preached in John, but not like we're going to take it. So that's coming. And what we will probably do is juxtapose John go back to 2 Kings for a while, come back to John, uh, back and forth a little bit uh, with some other things mixed in. But um, I I want you to be excited about John if it's not for the first time, as if for the first time. And so that's what we're, what, what we're going to be doing. Uh, we have four so-called Gospels in our Bible, the first four books of the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as the synoptic Gospels. They are a lot like each other. Uh, There's debate on which one was written first and which one uh, used the other one as a template to to, to talk about because some of the wording is exactly the same. Uh, They were written for various groups of people. We won't go deep into all of that. They had their their target audiences. They had their people to, to to write to. John came along about... We would say perhaps 20 years later, we're going to get into that a little bit. John was different. When I was in seminary, there was the big debate. Do you teach the synoptics and then John, but then what do you do with Acts? And so what they did my first year in seminary, and they'd probably been doing it for years ahead of time, they taught when it came to the Gospels, they did Matthew, Mark, and then John as a contrast and then they taught Luke and Acts together since Luke wrote both of them. And they, they, they um, had that reason. Uh, John is different, though. That's what we're trying to say. There's no Christmas story in John, for instance. You don't read about Mary and Joseph and, and um, angels and shepherds and wise men in John. You have what, what, what we just read. Boom. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. And Jesus came. Uh, There are other things about John that are different. I was surprised to know this, and I probably had read this or thought, I I know I've heard this, and it didn't surprise me the first time because it was like something new. There's no parables in John. Jesus taught using parables, but you can't find the first parable in John. That was interesting to me. Why did he leave that part out? What was necessary? We're going to get into this text, God's word, from that perspective, from, from what John wanted. Now we know the ultimate author of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The true author is God, the Holy Spirit, uh, breathing out His words in the way that they wanted to, uh, in the way that God wanted us to, to hear it. So we get this. Um, it's a book about Jesus, and we're going to get it right into the into the um, into the sermon in a moment. But the point of this book, you say, why did somebody write this? I finished a book this week I thought okay what motivated them why did they write it was it for a commercial was it because they had a stake in it why why did they write the book why did she sit down to write it in the beginning John tells us why he wrote this book and we see it and that's in uh John chapter 20 verses 30 and 31 he's coming to the end and he says this Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book. In other words, his issue was what to leave out. Jesus did many other things. He said, but these things, these things that I wrote, the way I put this book together, I wrote these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is an evangelistic tract. This is something for us to see. He looked at what was there. He looked at the state of the church. And as the Lord led him, he sat down and he wrote this book so that we could believe, so that his initial readers and the rest of us through history could see that Jesus is the Christ and that we could believe that. And that by believing, we could have life in his name. So, five things about Jesus this morning. One is the first point is a little, it is still part of of the background for the book. But five things about Jesus Christ this morning that we walk away with. Five propositions that will get developed later on uh, throughout the text. The first one is this Jesus Christ is provocative. And you could, if you're writing it down on a note, you could say slash divisive. Jesus makes you think and you have to come to a decision about Jesus one way or the other. That's we're talking, Jesus Christ. And you accept or reject, you you see him the way that he's presented by himself in the Bible, or you say, That's a bunch of garbage and you take your chances with eternity. Because what if you're wrong? Jesus Christ is provocative. Jesus Christ's second point is both divine and human. That's in verses 1 and 2. Three, Jesus Christ has spoken through creation. That's verse 3. Jesus Christ is life, verse 4. And Jesus Christ is the light of the world, verses 4 and 5. First, Jesus Christ is provocative and divisive. It may surprise you to know. I'm saying this almost tongue-in-cheek. It may surprise you to know that there are people who don't just disbelieve in the truth of the gospel. They actively oppose anything to do with Jesus as Redeemer. You've met them. Maybe you were them. They don't just disbelieve it, but they so strongly uh, disbelieve it that they oppose it. And they do this with all of Scripture. The Gospel of John has been a target for people. There's this biblical criticism and this literary criticism, and people professing themselves to be wise have foolishly tried to use arguments to undo Scripture. I think there's less of that these days, just from my perspective, because right now the Bible is just not a factor in people's lives but in a culture where the Bible was looked at and revered as God's word, people actively thought they had to destroy the Bible so that they could go ahead and live their lives. They do this with the Gospel of John uh, specifically. By the way, I didn't put this in my notes, but I believe it was Martin Luther who said, if somebody could take away and eliminate every Bible from the earth and all we had left was John and Romans, we would have enough. To, to, Christianity would sur- would, could survive. John and Romans are, are two great theological, uh, wonderful treatises. And I would say, if you're, they always used to say, if a new Christian, read John, read John, read John, and they'd take you to Romans. And then I would say, add Hebrews, and that gives you a flavor for the Old Testament. And then just start taking it all in. Uh, go from there how, how you want. But John is, is a benchmark. And so they attacked John. They said John was actually written a few centuries after Jesus died. They questioned the authenticity of it. The early manuscripts we have of it, they say, are, oh, three or four hundred years later. They called the Gospel of John a theological fantasy. Uh, they, They grudgingly had to praise the other three Gospels and said there's some So you can see Judaism, and you can see from history, you can see at least where these guys were coming from. But John is a theological fantasy. A part of a plan that people have is to discredit Scripture as a whole. The real target is God, and they can't get to God, so they go after God's people, and they go after God's Word. If you're a believer, it's because God gave you faith to believe. And part of God giving you faith to believe that Jesus Christ is the way, the truth, and the life, part of his gift of of faith to you, along with that gift of repentance, is that faith to believe his word. And that grows too. See it in the life of of folks like C.S. Lewis, for instance, others. If you're a believer, I really believe it's because God gave you the faith to believe, and part of that is believing His word. I had the basketball game on last night, the first one on the radio. I don't get the TV, some of the TV channels, so I couldn't watch it, and probably wouldn't have taken the time to watch it. But in the, I love, I love sports on the radio. And this Florida Atlantic uh, pulled off what some people thought was an upset because Kansas State is more well known. And the first thing they did as they interviewed one of the players, he said, I'd like to thank my Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, for even giving me the ability to pick up a ball. Something like that. It wasn't a, God help me win, I'd like to thank God. It was a thoughtful Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And the announcer interviewing him went, uh. and I told Paula about it. She said, probably he didn't know if he was going to get in trouble for not for letting that on the air if there's a mute button because we don't know. But people don't like that in the public forum these days. There is a hostility toward God, an uneasiness. You're not supposed to talk about your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And I'm like, good for that young man. Um, I know there's probably Christians and and, uh, and pagans on on all the teams, but I kind of hope that young guy uh, can, can win the championship uh, for, for that. That was good. Um, but people like to go, uh, uh, wait, wait, you can't talk about, oh, God, no. Um, uh, it's crazy. But it's not crazy. It's explainable. The Bible says this would happen. And so they look at John and they say, John shouldn't really be in the Bible. It's written later. Obviously, it was written not by a, a Jewish guy. It's got all this Greek thought in it. And also there are things in there that just don't jibe with history, and with archaeology. So here's three quick things about this divisive Jesus Christ and this tearing apart of John. Uh, Three recent developments uh, that we can say, no, it, it encourages the Christians, it's there. One development is this, a scrap of papyri that was wrapped around a mummy that they found in Egypt. And they dated that mummy and that Egyptian stuff to the year 125 A.D., and I, I wish I had written, I didn't write what the passage was, but it, it's, it's word for word from John. I think it was John 18, maybe 8 or 18 in the back of my head. But there it was. That would have had to have been written, made its way over the years to Egypt, been used, then discarded and used to wrap around a mummy in 125. You can't say that's 325 and not really Scripture. The Dead Sea Scrolls, the story of the Dead Sea Scrolls where the guy threw the stone in and heard the shattering and they found all these things. Well, the argument against John's gospel as being authentic is that it's so different from the others, and it has to be Greek, it has to be Hellenistic. One thing they look at, among other things, is the way that in John you see the contrast between darkness and light, heaven and hell, Uh, this world, the afterworld. And those types of contrasts, they say, were not part of everyday Jewish thought. They were part of what you see among the Greeks. And so the Dead Sea Scrolls uh, are found and they start to translate and they realize there's a whole group of people there in that part of of Israel. Let me read the word for word. Um, It says the Dead Sea Scrolls uncovered, quote, a whole world of non-conformist Judaism that had simply not been known to scholars previously. And they go, yes, that is authentic language for that group of people, significant group of people there in Jerusalem. And so all this smart people stuff, this had to be Greek, it had to be later, it had to be this, it's getting destroyed. Uh, The truth is, is being known about John as more and more archaeological things are discovered. Third one. John talks about a pool with five porches. This is in John 5, 1 through 3. I'll read the verses. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. John writes, Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. And the scoffers say, ha, there's no record in any history, in any culture of a, a five-sided pool, no Pentagon pool, no none of that. And so John's just making it up, and you can't believe your scriptures. And the archaeologists keep digging and digging, and about 75 feet below the surface, they found a rectangular pool. A big rectangular pool. That's four sides, right? <laughs> okay, triangle two, square, four, rectangle four. But John said there was five. So the colonnades, if this is the pool and it's kind of in the right place, there'd only be four. But what else they discovered is that this cool pool had a archway over it and the colonnade built on top of it. The fifth one was over the top of it. And that's the design that secular archaeologists have dug up. There were five colonnades. There were five roofed colonnades as John said. And all of a sudden you say wait a minute. Science, archaeology, history is proving what the Holy Spirit has already told us. This is God. Francis Bacon said one time, people prefer to believe what they prefer to be true. People want, give me some cheap way that you can talk me out of Christianity. Let me do a a, a stinking YouTube search by somebody. I don't even care where it comes from, but just tell me the Bible's not true and tell me my... Parents and my pastor and those generations ahead are just a bunch of dummies. I'm smart, so let me go to YouTube and find somebody tell me all these things. And yeah, I can be talked out of anything. I prefer to believe what I prefer to be true. If I don't like somebody and somebody tells me something bad about them, I go, yay, that's true. That's in character. That's what I know about them. You tell me they did something good, and I'm like, nah, they didn't. No, you got the wrong person. They couldn't have done that because I want to believe what I want to believe. But I'm sorry, here comes science, here comes the facts, proving the Bible over and over and over again. And here's John as a valid witness to the scripture. So we get into John, you got God's word. People want to live for themselves, they don't want to think about sin, they don't want to think about their own sin. They don't want to think about the consequences for sin. They don't want to think about the consequences for their own sin. And so I want to to make sure Jesus isn't true. Hell, judgment, Jesus on the cross, bearing the wrath of the Father, though he was innocent, paying for my guilt, then him saying, Follow me. I'd rather just kind of take my chances. All of that was evidence. Or all that is evidence that Jesus Christ is provocative. You have to, at some point in your life, and if not in your life, in the afterlife, you have to reckon with Jesus Christ. Is the person and work of Christ what the Bible says it is, or is it not? We can destroy the word about him. We can discredit the Bible so as to discredit him. And then we can just live and not have to think about deeper issues. Here's 1 Peter 2, 6 through 8, quoting Scripture here. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Continuing with Scripture, So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, It's the stone that the builders rejected having become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling or a rock of offense. There's a songwriter named Michael Card who's pretty good. He wrote a song and he talked about Jesus and and the chorus goes, he's the stone that makes men stumble and the rock that makes men fall. And I will say to every single person here, you will either build your life your belief system, your ethics, your hope on Jesus as the very cornerstone or you will trip over him and topple into hell. So now let's look at the text. We see Jesus Christ as provocative. Now we see Jesus Christ as both God and man. Verses 1 and 2 and then down to 14. 1 and 2. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. The word capitalized W, another name for Jesus. And it says he was there in the beginning. God always was with no beginning or no end. And this is a Trinitarian passage. I looked it up. Uh, I didn't need to because I've looked it up. This is basic. This is Greek class 101. This is like the band person learning to play hot cross buns uh, and then building on that to to, to their symphonies. Uh, This is basic Greek. In the beginning was the Word, and here's the literal translation: In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with the God, and God was the Word. He was in the beginning with God. That is so clear. Now, I told a couple of you, or maybe maybe I told the church a long time ago. Maybe in, in one of those rare occasions when I preached from John, but one night when we were here, we had a, a youth group going, and uh, we found a Bible, and it was a um, uh, it was a, a New World Translation. You get a Bible that says New World Translation, do what I did with that Bible. I shocked those kids. I said, let me see that Bible. And I went, threw it in the trash. And they went, ah, throw the Bible in the trash? Don't throw the Bible in the trash. And then I pulled it out and I showed them where that translation, where those group of people who we like, but who are on their way to hell because of what they don't believe about Jesus, it, that, that translation they engineered and they cut out the definite article. In the beginning was a word, the word was a God, and that's, it's not an indefinite article. Every text you've ever found, uh, scraps of paper wrapped around mummies, uh, definite article. The God, the word, God was the word. And it says, he pitched his tent, this is the human part of him, 14. The word became flesh and dwelt among us and we've seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth. John from the start under the inspiration of God presents Jesus as fully God and fully human. He became flesh. He pitched his tent. He tabernacled with us. Uh, There are We'll be more on this as he develops this theme as we proceed through the text in the next few weeks. But the ramifications of him being God and yet him being fully human, uh, he was able to be tempted as we are. He was able to die, meaning he was able to be killed. And this is why the bodily resurrection matters. But we see Jesus Christ, not just as provocative as the, the divider uh, uh, of, of, of eternal souls, but we see Jesus Christ as both God and man. Then we see that Jesus Christ has spoken through creation. Verse 3. All things were made through him, through the word. Without him, the word, Jesus, was not anything made that was made. Spoke through creation. He revealed the Father. Jesus' work is to reveal God. Uh, listen to him in verse uh, John fourteen nine, which we will get to in, in, in a while. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus, uh, second person of the Trinity, God in the flesh, Pointed out and reveals the Father. James Boyce said this read it slowly. You listen slowly. He said, This is seen first of all in the emphasis John places upon Christ's role in creation, the fact that Jesus reveals the Father to us. First of all, the emphasis that John places on Christ's role in creation. Creation reveals God, and Jesus was God's agent in creation. Thus, John can say, "Through Him, all things were made; without Him, nothing was made that has been made." What he's, what has, uh, what has God revealed about Himself in creation? What has God told us about Himself in creation? Jesus reveals God in creation. What has God told us about himself? Romans 1.20. For God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So those who reject God are without excuse. This means, Boyce continues, that when Jesus Christ began by revealing God in creation, he revealed him in two important aspects his existence, and his power. And that these are sufficient to condemn all people for their failure to bow down and worship him. Jesus revealed God even as creator. And you've seen the creation that Jesus uh, created, the things he made, and that must point you to God as a creator. And if you want to deny that, that's foolish. Next, we're told from the very beginning that Jesus Christ is life. Verse 3. I'm sorry, verse 4. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. Jesus Christ is life. This will be developed throughout the Gospel of John. This was our motto when we first, uh, we first organized the church. We had our little vote. We voted on Christ the Shepherd as the name of the church. We voted on John 10.10. 10. I still remember a guy that came a little later, Mike Cannes, who I bet nobody here remembers, but maybe Herb and I own and, and, and Paula and, and me. But Mike said, when we had discover a full life as our motto, he said, do you think people could read this wrong? Because <laughs> their lives are already full. They don't want to come and have more of a full life. And I said, <laughs> Mike, you're absolutely right. We've got to find a translation that says, Discover uh, something kind of a life, but but, but the meaning of it is not your full life gets more full. The meaning is your life, even in all of its fullness, is relatively pointless and empty. And you're living for nothing. Uh, uh, Bill Maloney from Vigilantes of Love singing that song where he said, I was buying fake diamonds, buying fool's gold, filling it all up in a bag shot full of holes in the land of plenty with an empty soul. And that's the life without Christ. A whole lot of nothing, or as they said for a while when they talked about news reports, and and, uh, you don't hear it so much anymore, but like every time you turn on the news a few months ago, it's a nothing burger, it's a nothing burger, it's a nothing burger. Well, you know what? That's life without Christ. And Jesus Christ is life. He did come that we might have life. And John contrasts darkness and life. And right from the very start, he's establishing Jesus Christ is life. In him was life. Classic funeral text that we referred to. John 14, Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You say, but I wish, I wish it wasn't this way. I wish there were other ways. There are people I know and love. I was talking, again with Anna this morning, about the Gong, those, those uh, uh, Chinese folks who are facing equal persecution to Christians along with the Uyghurs. But the Gong, man, I like their, their attitude, but they don't know Jesus. I wish there was an exception for just like likable good people. I wish, I wish, I wish. For one, I wouldn't have to weep for people and wonder. But as they said, if wishes were horses, beggars would ride. Or as somebody said, and I looked this up this week because I like this even better, Scottish uh, old proverb, if wishes were fishes, we'd all swim in riches. Um, (laughs) You know, wishes are one thing, reality is something else. And wishing, wanting to believe in something that is not true doesn't make it true. And Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And John 1 says, in him was life. So either the Bible was true, and is true, or it's not true. But there's that definite article there in the text again. In him was the life. Or literally, in him life was, and the life was the light of men. So there's that definite article. And we're talking about spiritual life here. We see Jesus as creator creating physical life, but the only way for the recreation, the new creation, the new birth, uh, is through Jesus Christ as well. We're going to get to that. John 3. That's going to be fun to hit John 3.16 in the context of Nicodemus, right before Jesus then goes to the woman at the well. Okay, John develops this in his letter. Uh, in First John five eleven and twelve, same writer, same thought, same God anyway. So we're not setting texts up against each other in Scripture, but God said this through the same the same human author. First John five eleven and twelve, and this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. Whoever has the Son has life whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. You either have life or you don't. And you have life if you're in the Son and you have Jesus Christ and Christ is in you and you're in Christ or you are dead. Even if you can do 100 jumping jacks in two minutes or whatever. You're dead. Spiritually dead. And the final statement in these first five verses that John makes about Jesus in the opening to his gospel that we're going to develop over the course of time is that Jesus Christ is the light of the world. Uh, One sense in which to understand Jesus Christ being the light of the world is that he's the true light that exposes us. We think we're pretty bright. In fact, here's a dumb joke I just remembered from the Bennett Surf book of jokes that I used to carry around as a little kid. I used to say this. People laughed politely. I expect the same from you. I would say, I'm so bright, my mom calls me sunny. Anyway, <laughs> we, uh, we think we're so bright. We think we're so enlightened. We think we're so smart. And listen to this. Without him, we see dimly. And so all we do is compare ourselves to each other. And as we compare ourselves to each other, depending on what we choose to compare, uh, what, what, what our category is, we're pretty good people. We're pretty good when we compare ourselves to other people. We pay our bills, including our taxes, if we can get them figured out. We mow our lawns. We don't text and drive. We don't talk loud in the movie theater. We don't cut in line. We're really good folks. I'm a good person. Whatever it is that you're proud of about yourself, where other people fall short that you happen to notice. told you about that woman that said to me at the Costco parking lot, she said, I I felt really good about this. I didn't even think about it. I just liked a compliment from somebody. And and I've told some of you about this. She said, you look like I was putting my my cart back. I I really pride myself in in, in putting the cart back in the cart thing in the parking lots. Um, and, And I was putting the cart back. And she said, you look like the kind of person who would put your cart back in the right place. And I didn't even stop to think, what would a person look like like that? Like other people do it, they don't look like me. I didn't even think about it. I thought later on, was she trying to flirt with me or something? But I don't think she was. I think she was just being a self-righteous hypocrite, and I joined her in, in, in my self-righteous hip, hip, hypocrite-ness. And we sat and we looked. And I said, like, look at that. And we watched, something. look at that, look at that. And we saw this woman right beside the cart thing, and she still puts her cart up on the curb when it's just as much... Trouble for her to put it up on the curb and, and put her foot and lift it up there. And so just walk it right there. And and, and we talked about all this stuff, and we spent a good couple of minutes uh, lifting ourselves up as the kind of people that would put a cart back. And how do I know we're hypocrites? Because it was raining hard about a week later. Raining so hard. And I was at ShopRite on my way home, and uh, and I... Didn't park next to the cart thing. I parked next to the door because of the rain. But that left me with a dilemma because I got out afterwards and now it's equal distance but a long distance in pouring rain to take the cart up to the store or to run it way up the, the lot, push it uphill to the parking lot. And do you know what I did? Yep. What did Dave the hypocrite do? I did. I just left it on the curb. And as I drove away, I said, I looked in the mirror and I said, You look like the kind of person who would put your cart back in the right place. Um, What is that? We compare ourselves to ourselves and each other, and we're pretty good. And Jesus came along, and part of the important thing about Jesus is he lived a life of sinlessness. He was the light in how to do life. He didn't sin. He exposes us. It's not pretty. Bruno came and painted our ceiling uh in our kitchen, in our living room, and, and 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 things, and he had this spotlight. And you know, I could look and I could go, Man, good job, there's nothing wrong. But that spotlight on the ceiling, you see every little dimple, every little thing, and to shine a spotlight on it. And part of Jesus' perfection, uh, he lived as a human being like us, tempted like we are, yet without sin, did everything right. That's one way that his light exposed us. But his light also exposed God's saving heart. 1 John 4, 10. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. And as Jesus as creator exposed God, Jesus as light, Shown the light on God's great love for his people. And then we see another meaning of Jesus as the light. He's the true light that overcomes the darkness of this world. The true light that overcomes the darkness of this world. And I wanted to point out, um, how did Jesus describe hell where Jesus is not? One description is outer darkness. So how you can get the flames going and all that, and you think of hell as this bright place but a terrible, fiery place, Uh, Jesus' description is outer darkness. What's the description of heaven? Thinking in terms of Jesus as the light. Revelation 21, 22 through 25. And I saw no... This is John also writing Revelation. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb, the Lamb of God. He's the light. No power bills going up and down, no locking in your price, no, none of that. in heaven. Uh, it's well lit. The glory of God lights it, and the lamp is the lamb. And, this, and uh, it says, "By its light, then will the nations walk?" and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, and its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. So, we've looked at Jesus Christ. We've set the stage to get into John. The next two weeks, we're going to be in John, but we're going to jump ahead to Holy Week. There's a passage from that week that we'll take next Sunday. Uh, And then the following Sunday being Easter, we'll take the John account of Easter and we'll start to be thinking about how John writes and how how that went. And then we're going to come back and pick up in John 1 three weeks from now. But to apply this and, and, and conclude this, the best one I can make right here in Danbury in the March of 2023, year of our Lord 2023, is the same one John made back when he wrote the book. It's the reason God wrote this book and preserved it for us. It's the reason I preach to you. It is, it is what you have as your life's motivation as a Christian, and your joy, it's what you can cling to. Quote it at the start, I'll quote, quote it at the end, and then we'll go to the table. John 20, 30 and 31. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you, 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 may have life in his name. That's the point. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for sending him. Thank you for the light that he's shown and continues to shine. Thank you that in seeing him, we see you. Thank you for his substitutionary death on the cross, where he bore the wrath the separation that was due to us. And thank you that in his light we have life, and we thank you for eternal life. In Jesus' name, amen.